Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Welcome to the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival debut author panel featuring some of the finest writers uh, in the world, in the galaxy. Um, I will take a few moments to introduce you out there in, in the virtual space to our, our people, so bear with me for a moment here. I'm your, I'm your moderator, Maurice Collis Ruffin, author of The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, but we're not here for me, we're here for these folks. So let's see who they are. We have the incredible Robert Jones Sr. Just joking. Robert Jones Jr., make sure you're paying attention, brother. Robert Jones Jr. <laughs> is author of the New York Times. It's an instant best-selling novel, The Prophets. Um, one of the first books I read this year actually just blew my wig off. That's why I'm hairless right now. Uh, he has also written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, the Paris Review. He is the creator and curator of the social justice, social media community, Son of Baldwin, which has over 280,000 followers across platforms. Here is a quote that the New York Times said about this illustrious brother. The Prophets is a lyrical and rebellious love story embedded with a tender call out to black readers, reaching across time and form to shake something old, mighty in the blood. That is quite a statement right there. All right, we got homeboy, Mateo, that's cardboard. Uh, his works aim to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement no matter the obstacle. He was chosen as one of Entertainment Weekly's 10 rising stars to make waves in 2021. A 2018 Rhode Island writer's colony writer in residence, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, and elsewhere. His debut novel, Black Book, was an instant New York Times bestseller, and a read with Jenna Today show book club. He lives in Brooklyn. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Mateo. The Washington Post said about Black Book, the syncopated tone of the novel keeps the story constantly shifting. In these pages, even cringe-inducing moments can suddenly slip into wise counsel or heartfelt confession. No matter how lacerating this vision of systemic racism is, Derek, the protagonist, seems buoyed by a generous spirit, a well of joy that feels downright miraculous. And last and possibly best, we have Donnie Walton. He is a writer, editor, and author of the novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. Her work explores identity, place, and the influence of pop culture. Formerly an editor at Essence and Entertainment Weekly, she has received fellowships in fiction writing from McDowell and Tent House, and an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Her writing has been published in Bon Appetit, Oxford American, Lit Hub, and Black Ballad. Born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband. And one of the greatest uh, quotes I've seen you know, in a long time, the New York Times says, this novel is so good. I want to rent a velvet swag amphitheater and gather a large audience to blare through a microphone just how much I like it. You can't top that. Congratulations to all of you on uh, producing such wonderful books for us. So look, we're going to keep this loose and light. 
Um, people who are watching probably know that this was meant to be a live event, but the world has intervened. So curiously, I'm actually in Jackson right now, which was not planned, but it happened because of a little hurricane called Ida. But I'm just happy to be in this space with you all because I'm just a little bit of a veteran in comparison to you. But just like watching y'all come out one after another being like, just like hit after hit after hit. This is not normal. So I'm just, I'm here as an admirer of y'all and my job for the audience is to stay out of the way and let you all talk as much as possible about what you have achieved. So um, I do want to start at the beginning and um, I'm going to start out with, with uh, Robert um, because I, I feel like um, I've heard you talk about this before. I think this is valuable for not only readers, but valuable for writers as well. Making a book is not easy. Um, it takes a lot of things to come together to get it done. And a big part of that, people will always ask you, well, how long did it take you to write this book? But if it's your first book, it took your entire life, basically, you know, decades. So can you just talk to us and we'll ask the other panelists about this also. Um, what was your path to becoming this debut novelist, the author of the great book, The Prophets? It all starts with Wonder Woman. <laughs> My father bought me a Wonder Woman comic when I was four years old. And that was the spark that made me realize that words had power, um, that you could create entire worlds um, out of uh, your, simply your imagination. Skip it, skipping ahead a couple of decades though, um, the idea of the prophets came to me um, when I was an undergrad um, in college and I recognized that um, I could not find any black queer history prior to the Harlem Renaissance. And so um, I went looking and investigating and um, read a couple of the um, classic slave narratives, um, Frederick Douglass and um, Harriet Jacobs, as well as some of the, um, the best um, literary canon like um, Toni Morrison's Beloved and could only find sort of like these whispers, um, these unspoken, you have to read between the lines to kind of glean what's happening and always in the context of rape or sexual assault. And my question was, well, what about love? So in my first semester of the MFA program, I said, I'm going to write this story about two enslaved um, men in um, antebellum Mississippi who are in love and how that love transforms everyone around them. Um, so from the moment I put pen to paper, to the moment my editor said, okay, that's it, no more revisions, we're going to print, was 14 years. Um, and so, um, yes, it takes a great deal of, somebody, somebody is now sharing on social media something James Baldwin said about writing, about how it involves, all, yes, it's talent, of course, but it's also luck and perseverance, endurance, and all of these other things. And he's right, it's, you can't simply be talented. You, you have to also be willing to withstand the pressures of continuing the work, um, of um, the terror of how it's going to be received, because you're going to always think of the worst case scenarios. Um, and you have to be so vulnerable to just say, well, I'm going to put it out anyway. And for, 14 years was the amount of preparation I needed to not only write the book, but to also prepare myself for, for the world to read it. Oh, thank you so much for that, Robert. And, you know, when you say that about that, that vulnerability of dealing with audiences and critics, I can't help but think about 
you know, our brother Michael K. Williams, uh, who passed yesterday, uh, you know, well known for his work on The Wire and on, on other shows and programs. And just, you know, the, what happened to him, I just, I, my heart goes out to him and his family. Um, there's a clip of him where he is playing himself with like four of the versions of himself in his, in his apartment. And he's talking about that pressure of like trying to be the right kind of person. But like, what does that even mean? And I think that in different ways, in your different works, we, we see some of that. And I guess we'll get into it more, but I did want to acknowledge that he passed uh, because I was shocked and I was saddened because he just did DMX, you know, over the summer at the, at the Music Awards. And he did a great job, you know, honoring DMX. And now he's gone. So I want to bring that up. So, so Donnie, I want to come to you next here. You have a very interesting story to share about how you got to where you are. And, you know, some people have the advantage of sort of coming from like publishing, publishing hubs like New York City, for example, or perhaps California, but you're a Jacksonville uh, person. Um, so just, you know, what is your journey like personally and professionally? <laughs> yes, uh, from Jacksonville, Florida, but always had New York dreams. <laughs> That's where I live right now. Um, and I had a whole long career in media. You know, I worked in magazines, I worked in digital journalism. And I think the reason that I did that um, was because I always wanted to be close with words and working with words. And I don't think earlier versions of myself, I don't think they were ready really to do what I had to do um, with this novel. And, you know, um, I'm so glad that Robert, you invoked James Baldwin because he said something else that really sparked for me when I started writing Opal and Nev. Um, he, in talking about his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, said it was the book that he had to write before he could write anything else. And I feel in some ways that that was my story as well. Um, I'd always been interested in my life as a young person growing up in Jacksonville and being in the mid early to mid nineties and liking certain kinds of music, but not seeing myself reflected in it. And, you know, not until recent years with the Afropunk movement and things like this, seeing that kind of reflected back in the media that I liked. And so 2013, I had some changes in my life that had me sort of asking myself really hard questions about what I was doing with myself and my career. And you know, one little secret about media is once the higher up you get, the less it is about working with words and the more it becomes about managing people and managing budgets and all of these things. And so I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm getting away from my passion. And so I started writing again. And I say I did it on the edges of my day because I had very long and brutal work days, like 12, 14 hour work days. And I would get up at five in the morning and write this novel, write these characters that were really speaking to me. And if I had the energy at night, I would do the same thing. So I'm burning the candle on both ends because I'm finally feeling that light and that fire. And, you know, it took me a long time to, to write it. Um, it took me about eight years um, from when I started to when, when publication um, happened. But you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a late bloomer, but I really do believe that I could not have written this book at any other point in my life. I, I feel that 100%. I often think about what would have happened if I was like, you know, a wonder 10, 18 year old trying to write a book. And I'm like, I don't want to read that guy's book. <laughs> necessarily. Right. I had to grow up a little bit. Um, 
But some of us are, you know, a little bit more advanced. I don't know Mateo's exact age, but I do think he's probably one of the younger people on this panel. He's the so, so talk to us, Mateo, about your journey to become this, this debut author. Damn, I'm the baby brother right here. Um, what, what folks who are watching don't know is that Donnie, Robert, and myself actually have linked up in person. Um, we're part of a crew in our area, and we were fortunate, fortunate enough to spend time in person together. And um, it was something that buoyed my spirits and is something that still sustains me to this day, even though it was a month or so ago. Um, I'm also happy and also sad, you know, that we brought up Michael K. Williams, but um, I think his, his death, all death, right, puts things into perspectives. And you don't want to look at it as though it's something that's a utility, but uh, for many people, especially if you can see yourselves reflected back in an artist, it's just going to do that. Robert and I were discussing him last night and this morning. And for me, what I admired potentially most about Michael K. Williams is that he threw himself fully into all of his work. And I'm not just speaking about acting because he did other things with previously incarcerated individuals and so forth. For me and my journey, it took me a little bit to get there, right? Um, I was working at a startup in sales. I was 24, managing 30 people, making more money than ever before. I was in many ways lost and caught up in the sauce. And then I began to wake up in a way, you know, Robert uh, invoked another great uh, Miss Morrison, she says that if you have power, you have to empower other people. If you are free, you have to free other people. Slowly but surely, when I was 24, I was beginning to um, wake up due to things that I was seeing, due to people who were trying to, ah, get up, man, you know, and that's when I turned to writing, which was always a love of mine. I began writing articles and essays, and then May uh, 21st, 2016 is when I said, I love fiction. Let me try to write a book. I don't know what, what's going to happen, but let me just try. And as I tried my hand at fiction, I realized that writing for me wasn't just an outlet, but that writing fiction was a very specific form of salvation for me. So I finished that book and <laughs> I was so naive. I had no idea what I was doing that unedited. I started pitching it out to agents uh, I left my job. I couldn't, I couldn't stay there anymore. And I was just hitting up top literary agencies in the States and America. Like, here's my, here's my manuscript. Do you want to, you want to rep, you want to rep it? Uh, but I will say that when I began getting rejections, sort of my, my, my sales experience kicked in because we are taught that a no is better than no response. So me getting these rejections made me feel legit. I was like, yes, I'm a writer. Ah! Watch all these people that I'm leaving in the startup world. I'm about to be on. I'm going to go from being the sales guy to being a published author. I might mess around and be a bestseller. Who knows? That's not what happened. First book. I got a couple of people who ended up looking at it and no offer of representation. The pitch because of my sales experience was good, but the writing wasn't. I said, bet tried writing another book after studying a book called Plot and Structure, which helped me learn more about plot and structure. I said, okay, I know a little bit more about the industry. Let's fire this one off. This one got to get me an agent. I want an agent because that's what I hear you need to get published. Boom, passed it off. <laughs> no agent. So now I'm back at my parents' house in the room that I grew up in. I'm like, yo, should I go back to the world of sales? Who did I think I was that I could go and, and leave this world? I was picking up the phone a hundred times a day. And now I'm going to write a book that someone's going to want to represent or no less buy, you know, acquire to then sell to other people. And I had to have a conversation with myself. 
I have three older brothers, one younger brother. And one of my older brothers, when he's lost, goes into the forest and has a conversation with himself. And I sat down and I said, it doesn't matter whether it takes five months or five years. I'm going to do this. But I'm no longer going to pander to this industry, to pander to the tastes of agents or editors, many of whom do not look like anyone on this panel. Instead, I'm going to write the book that I want for the people that I want in the way that I want. And it was at that point that I realized I was shying away from a few topics that were staring me right in the face, namely the intersection of sales, race, and the startup world. And the idea, a more, <laughs> a more radical idea of the book was born and I refined it and then I began writing it January, 2018. And uh, we published it January, 2021. That's quite a journey. I, I, love, I love to hear that. And I love the fact that you know, you give credence to those earlier experiences as learning experiences to get to, to where you are now. That's something I think we can all identify with as writers. For anybody out there who is trying to get on at some point, you got to like a few, a few, you know, steps backwards first to get out here into the world. Um, speaking of steps, I'm going to sidestep. I want to ask a question and anybody who wants to answer, we can go with whatever order you want to go in. Um, I'm curious, like on a personal level, what's a hobby that you have that people who read your works might not know is a hobby you have. Whoever wants to step up and take it. Well, I don't know if I would call this a hobby per se. I watch a lot of television. <laughs> I consume a lot of television yeah. and television that is both like very kind of like prestige and television that is complete trash. <laughs> and I think Something about both. I mean, of course, you watch the prestige television for um, the dialogue, the the visual storytelling, like all these craft things. But some of the trash, I find it can be very good for characterization <laughs> and for like terrible bad behavior. And And one of the things, you know, one of my teachers in my MFA program, one of the things um, that I thought was very interesting that he said was that plot is nothing but bad behavior. It's like characters behaving badly and, and the other characters sort of reacting to that bad behavior. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I spent an embarrassing amount of time consuming, consuming television. All right, you got to give us a couple of your favorite trashy TV programs. Come on now, is it the Kardashians? What is it? What you got? No, it's Bachelor. not the Kardashians. I do, however, I, I I am obsessed with the Real Housewives of Potomac. That's the one that I that I do from the franchise. I dip in and out of Atlanta, and I'm just going to stop there. Uh, save yourself. <laughs> very vulnerable right now. <laughs> that, that's all right, but no, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I know that quite a few writers have talked about the importance of like having um, an interaction with with quote unquote, high culture and low culture. I mean, I think even like Nabokov mentioned it one time and, and, and you can see it in the works. The works always feel more round if the writer has those, that variety of experiences. Uh, who, who else wants to go next? Uh, well, I, I mentioned this before. Um, I collect comic books and I've been collecting comic books since I was four years old and I'm 50 now. So that's 46 years of, of reading and collecting comic books. My editor actually said that she could tell that I liked comic books based on the last, the, the big plot turns in The Prophets. She said kind of reminded her of uh, comic book storytelling because it was very visual. Um, but I did not recognize that myself um, because it's so weird. I always wanted to write comic books, 
but I don't know how to write them because they're such a different medium than, than fiction, um, literary fiction, because as you, you all know, literary fiction is in interior world and it's so hard to write exterior world and because it, it goes against all your instincts as a fiction writer to put it all on the page in that way. But um, recently, um, a, a, a brilliant comic book writer named Kelly Sue DeConnick um, posted a page of her scripts um, so that she could sort of sort of show how she directs her collaborators to draw um, on the page. And I thought, oh, you could do it this way? This is sort of more literary. I think maybe now I can do it if you can do it in these sorts of ways. It's almost like a conversation between two characters. So that's my, my big hobby. Robert, if anybody can do it, bro, you can do it. I mean, your, your love for comics comes through in your writing and in conversation with you. You, you name check Wonder Woman. Um, most people don't even know who Kelly Sue the comic is, but I'm also a comic head too. So I, I got respect for her as like a creator and an editor and that kind of stuff. And I remember a couple of years ago, I, I love, you know, so Roxanne Gay is, is Roxanne Gay. So she was on Twitter and she literally said, I want to write a comic. And that's how she got on to writing the Black Panther women, like the, um, you know, the, the, the Dora Milaje. And I'm like, you can do that? You can like go on Twitter and like just announce you want to write a comic? And so, yeah, I feel that. And I could, I could see you doing something like that, bro, because I think you'd be excellent at it. I would read that. I'd, I'd buy copies and give them to all the kids in school. We, we want to see that. So keep that in the back of your head, please. Mateo. Robert, without a doubt, is going to have a comic. And I can't wait until I'm at that level, like Roxanne Gay, where I could just tweet that I want something and then it magically appears. Like, yo, who got a yacht? Um, I can't believe I'm about to admit this, but in my spare time, I grab a set of bagpipes and I go into the subway. I'm totally joking. Nah, your boy doesn't do that. What I like... <laughs> you hit me. I was over. You hit me. Yo, Donnie was like, son, bruh. Um, now what I like to do is I like to kayak. I like to snowboard. Um, I like to hike and something that me and a couple friends do whenever we go kayaking, hiking or snowboarding is playing count the black folk. Like, yo, there's one. Like, Oh, there's one too. Oh, buddy skiing doesn't count. You know what I'm saying? So, um, for me, that's, that's what I like to do. Get outside, get into nature. I actually went on a hike for my birthday and uh, I had nothing in my stomach but a cinnamon roll. And I ended up doing a four-hour, eight-and-a-half-mile hike in the 90-degree heat in the blistering sun. I wasn't expecting it. And I just um, – it was, it was a trying situation, but we made it. And we're here. I'm, I'm glad you made it. And I can only imagine being out there on either a kayak or hiking. You must feel very free when you do that kind of activity, right? Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's a sense of freedom and just being out in nature with nothing between you, no glass, nothing. It's uh, – it's bliss. I, I feel that for certain. Just make sure you hydrate. Like your boy, like I got this like 28-gallon, whatever this thing. This is Mr. 10 Miles. I saw you ran 10 miles the other day. Don't sleep on Maurice. <laughs> Unexpectedly. I was like, you know what? I've been locked up in these hotel rooms. I need to get out here and do this thing. Yep. Um, so, you know, from a craft perspective, you know, as a writer, whenever I read craft books, obviously I learn things. I'm pretty sure I read the book that uh, Mateo mentioned, Plot and Structure, when I was trying to figure out how to do those sort of things. And certainly in reading all of your, your books, there's some like master craft level stuff going on. I want to start with Donnie, but, you know, like certainly, you know, Mateo has this sort of sales manual structure, which is, you know, genius, right? And then we got Robert bringing out like the, the sort of prophets and the testaments by these various characters. And 
like not being afraid to like just like leave like a, a, an established character and like get a new voice and a new point of view, which is, takes a lot of guts. And don't you know what you're doing? I mean, it's just like you, you're doing the whole music thing. It's hard to write music first and foremost. I think I, I think maybe Baldwin like wrote one of the only stories that's like about music. You know, Sonny's yeah, Blues. Sonny's Blues. So yeah. so just talk about like how you decide to like sort of structure your book so that what you're trying to bring forth came out to the to the readers. Well, again, I have to thank my previous career for giving me the the structure for this book. Um, This book is written primarily in oral history format, which um, is a form that we use in journalism to often tell the stories of big and beloved or iconic, you know, movies or albums, things like that. And what I really loved about it was that it just allowed me to show case a chorus of voices many of them kind of looking at the same incidents from different perspectives you know there's a um there's a critical scene kind of in the middle of the book um, that is a concert scene and by having a character in the balcony and a character backstage it's almost like placing cameras all over that theater and giving kind of a 360 view of this event that changes all of the characters' lives. Um, So I really loved it for that. And um, it was also just really fun to differentiate the characters' voices. It was a fun challenge for me um, to make them feel, you know, of their time, but also very different from each other. And it, it was really, you know, one of the things that I did to try to differentiate them was to think about things like how each character would curse, you know. So it was just a, it was a fun experiment. It felt like play for me. And interspersed between the oral histories are essays by the journalist character who's pull, pulling everything together. And that was a chance to really kind of go deeper um, into narration and and to scratch that itch as well. So um, that's why I formatted it like that way, because it was just fun for me. It was very selfish, honestly. I'm just glad that people are enjoying it. I'm making a note to myself. Make sure you know how your characters curse. That's really important. I love that. Like it's a sort of defining characteristic. And I love that what you said also about writing being fun. I do think that a lot of writers forget that. And I, I do teach, yeah. I teach at LSU and other places. I'm like, look, y'all, you should be having a good time writing these things. Right. I mean, that's having fun is what brings you back to the computer day after day. It's what allows you to keep working on a thing for eight years or for 14 in Robert's case. To some degree, it has to be you know, satisfying to you as the writer. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much, Don. Let's go to Mateo with that same question about your structure you know, this brilliant idea of the sales manual, when did that come up and how did you decide to implement it? Yeah, you know, um, Donnie just really articulated exactly uh, where I was at when I was writing the book because I was being selfish in some ways and I was doing what I thought was most interesting to me and hoping that it would be interesting for the reader. But I did not know due to my lack of experience, to be completely honest, I did not know that I was doing anything different by breaking the fourth wall in the way that I did. Um, From the jump, I knew that I wanted this to be a sales manual of sorts. I was hoping it would be an engaging narrative, but would also be something that people, especially black folk would be able to read and say, damn, I wanna get into sales. Or if not get into sales, then they would have some sort of working knowledge to help better their situations from having certain um, sales tools. So 
It wasn't until, though, the fourth draft. I was reading Mitchell S. Jackson's The Residue Years, and he breaks the fourth wall in a very subtle way. Whenever he would write people, comma, you knew he was addressing the reader. So I was reading that. I thought about How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia by Mohsen Hamed. And at the beginning of every chapter, there is an adage of sorts, such as befriend a bureaucrat, stash some money away in a place no one will find it. And then I also thought back to when I got into sales and these books that were handed uh, to me from the co-founders of the place that I worked at, uh, like the, the Little Red Book of Selling, the Sales Bible, all written by a man named Jeffrey Gittimer. So I thought about those books. I thought about how, how impactful it is for someone just to speak straight and direct, no frills, no BS, and giving advice that is actually actionable. So I said, okay, I want this to be a sales manual. I like the way Mitchell S. Jackson's doing this right now. Why don't I re-engineer it from my book and I make it extremely conspicuous? I will set it apart from the previous and the next paragraph. I'm going to bold the hell out of it. And then I'm also going to write reader colon. So the reader knows, oh, he's talking to me right now. You know, he being um, my main character, Darren Bender, who is the one writing the book. Um, I did it first and foremost because I thought that it was, again, interesting for me, and I hope that other people would enjoy it. And uh, the responses that I've gotten is that the majority of people who do read it do like it. But then there are some who say, yeah, man, you really took me out of the narrative with like these side things and like I would have preferred to be in it. What I know is that I liked writing this. So, yeah. It reminds me of an old uh, Public Enemy song where Flavor Flav says, I got a letter from the DMV and it told me they were suckers. People are saying it doesn't work. I can't tell that they know what they're talking about. I think, I think it works fantastically. So, I mean, nice job with that. I think it's just very enjoyable. And, and what you said about a narrative that's direct to the reader, I think is a real thing that people really enjoy. I think you did a fantastic job with it. Thank you. So, Robert, so we have the seven voices. We got the prophets. We have the different characters for each chapter. You have this overflowing narrative. You have the back to Africa narrative. You got structures on top of structures. You got stacks on stacks on stacks. Bro, what were you doing? How'd you do it? Um, I did it by studying the masters. So um, as you see these, um, my spiritual godmother and godfather over my shoulder, Tony Morrison and James Baldwin, I in particular um, was looking at Paradise and Beloved. Um, to see how Toni Morrison, like Paradise in particular, which I think gets overlooked for its, it, it's, a, it's a masterpiece, but it's often not mentioned in the same sentence as um, Song of Solomon or Beloved or Sula or the Bluest Eye, but Paradise might be Toni Morrison's magnum opus. I, don't quote me because my, my opinion changes from month to month. But she's doing some incredibly complex structural things in that novel, not just with the um, refusal to um, tell us who the white girl is who was shot first, um, but um, in shifting the um, perspective from character to character in this book. And still there seems to be this overarching um, omniscient person who's guiding each of these characters to or informing each of these characters to. I wanted to try to replicate that, but break it down a little further and move not just through um, the narrative, but also through time. And the, um, the ancestral voices gave me the ability to do that. And those voices came to me in a dream. 
Um, although it was a older male who was talking to me in a garden is where I got, you don't, you don't, you do not yet know us from. Um, and I, in, in the prophets, I turned that into a chorus of seven um, women voices. Um, and, and they are, once I wrote that, um, it almost seemed um, instinctive to have those voices bring us back across the ocean to um, King Akusa and her people to sort of get their um, day in the life perspective on things and how um, those experiences there inform what's happening with Samuel and Isaiah. You know, I have some people say, I read this as Samuel and Isaiah are a reincarnation of Kosai and Alewa. Possibly, you know, and that's those sorts of things um, are the things that I, I left room for the reader to sort of glean on their own, not necessarily because I'm making those connections, but that's exactly how I wanted to do it. I wanted to leave breathing space between the various structures um, and the various ways I'm telling this story so that um, the connections can be made by the reader so that it's not just me talking to you, but it's us having a conversation, um, which is one of the things I love about um, Opal and Nev um, is the seamless way in which um, Donnie moves these characters. Like you, you're talking to Opal, then you're talking to Nev, and then you're talking to Pearl, and then you get the, the narrator, and then you get a, um, a footnote that also flips you back into the story. I, I was telling Donnie before that, you know, Juno Diaz does that with um, Oscar Wilde, but Oscar, and I hate to say this, I love his footnotes, but they completely take you away from the main story. But Donnie's does, doesn't. And I, I'm still astounded at how she did it, where it's almost like you're reading a continuation of the story, but it's the footnote and it's its own separate thing. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Donnie is teaching all of us with, with that with that structure. I mean, I couldn't even hardly describe it in the question because there's so much going on. I just like, no one Donnie, just explain it. Just tell us what happened. I love it. Um, and, 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 and certainly, Robert, um, I really appreciate the idea of how like a simple voice in your head as a writer can sort of expand and almost take over and help you figure out where you're trying to go as you're, as you're creating the narrative over time. Um, I feel like personally, if I don't hear those voices, I'm not telling the right story yet. I find that voice and then follow that voice where it wants to go. So a little bit of a different kind of question for anybody who wants to answer it. It's 2010. And right now in town tonight, you got Prince playing, you got Whitney Houston playing, and you got Beyonce playing in three different locations. Where are you going and why are you going there? Right. Um, I'm going to see Whitney. And, and I'll tell you why. Because Whitney was the only great artist that I never got to see perform live. Yeah. Um, I saw Prince. I saw Janet. I saw Michael. I saw Sade. I, I've seen the greats, except Whitney. Um, and to have been able to hear the voice in person, that's all I would have needed to complete the set. It makes sense to me. Absolutely. Who else? I'm going to see Whitney just because Robert is, and I want to hang out with him and just hear him. <laughs> but uh, nah, Whitney, Whitney was my choice as well. Um, to just, you know, keep it real, whenever I hear Whitney Houston's voice, it's a voice like Aretha Franklin, it's a voice like a few other people that 
makes me really believe in a higher power, like immediately when I hear it. Uh, it, it makes me know on a molecular level that, that there is something bigger than us that has um, endowed these individuals with their gifts. Some people experience the same when you see an actor, right? Or when you read a book by a certain writer or, or so forth. But Whitney Houston, for me, every time I hear her voice, it's just can't help but close my eyes and say, I know, I know. Mm-hmm. I'm of a certain age and, and Robert, I know you probably remember this, but at a certain point, I feel like at every elementary school talent show, somebody was singing greatest love of all, right? Like, <laughs> um, so I feel you both on wanting to see Whitney. I never also, I also never had the, um, the pleasure of seeing her perform live. I gotta say, I kind of wish Maurice that the venues are real close together so I could see Whitney and then, and then see Prince as well. Um, I have seen Prince. I did, I did see Prince. And uh, I think it was 2016, no, 2014. Um, and it was the most amazing, like hands down, the most amazing show, his versatility, his talent, his aura. Um, was so in- incredible, his range. I just like, I have to like run from one venue to the other. We'll get you that VIP pass. You can just Yeah, pull. give me the golf cart. There you go, the golf cart. Yes, indeed. So I want to ask y'all, tell us about your covers and or your titles and either like earlier versions of your titles and covers. Anything you want to talk about with titles and covers? I'll just talk about Mateo and see what you got to say about it. Very iconic cover, of course. Oof. Um, I, have, I have much to say about both of those things, but I'll, I'll keep it to... Uh... <laughs> Uh, which is more interesting to you, Maurice, the cover or the title? Dude, I got to leave it to you, man. I know you got some things to say. I don't want to block you. All right. All right. Um, when it came to the title, the original title was called Fixing the Game. All right. It, it was uh, two meanings, you know, that um, Darren, my protagonist, was going to fix the game, the game of life in a way that it's been rigged, and also that he was going to rig it finally in favor of black and brown folks. Um then I was like, mm, it's just not hitting in the way that I want. It doesn't feel like it actually is. It, it conveys the true essence of the book. Um, the character Darren was always from the jump given the nickname Buck. So I was just going to call it Buck. But then I said, mm, no, I want to reclaim the historically derogatory term of Black Buck because that's the energy that he's bringing to this workplace. And for, for the readers who, excuse me, for the viewers who are watching this, especially if a lot of you are in Mississippi, I'm sure the term black buck isn't foreign to you, right? But for those who are watching that aren't familiar, the black buck was the enslaved male that the white enslavers believed was unruly, untamable, was going to burn down the plantation, steal the pigs, steal the women and all that great stuff and really uh, make a mess. Um, now, my character, Darren, he is not burning down any workplaces, but he is burning down what they symbolize. So I felt as though the title was apt. And in no way was I, you know, in my room being like, ha ha ha, this is going to really provoke people. No, that wasn't what I was coming with. It was more so leading with the idea that this captured the spirit of the story in the most perfect way that a title could. Um, When it comes to the cover, and I'll be brief here, (laughs) I got this cover. This was the second one that was sent to me. I was like, what is this little bill shit? 
I was like, what are all these colors, this cartoonish type thing? I was like, nah, bro. And, and what I said is that my artistic sensibility might not be what sells books. So I defer to you. I don't want to get in anyone's way. But my, my honest opinion is that I'm not feeling it for these reasons. And I listed them out in a very respectful way. And my editor said, let's just sell, send you a dummy book right? Uh, basically a fake book with a fake printed cover of, of what it was going to be. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. She said, well, it's already in the mail. And I said, okay, this is going to be some psychology where I'm going to see it. It's going to feel like a real book. And I'm going to say, I love it. And that's sort of what happened. And I put the book across the room and after seeing it once, it was very recognizable. So I thought that it would be recognizable if people saw it once in a bookstore display and it grew on me uh, most of all, because it depicts the pivotal moment in the novel when our character Darren working at Starbucks sells this suave white guy, Rhett Daniels, the CEO at a startup on a new drink. And that's what you see in the cover, him handing it to this this man, Rhett. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you, Mateo. Who wants to go next up? I'll go. Um, so the title um, went through a couple of different changes. For the longest time, I was calling the novel oral history, A-U-R-A-L, because oral magazine is um, the magazine that the narrator works for. She's the editor. And so I was trying to be a little bit clever. And it was oral history, colon, the story of Opal and Nev. So it almost felt like a documentary. It felt like nonfiction. My agent was like, and, and Robert and I share the same agent. So you know how polite PJ is. He was like, yeah, that's not, that's not really it. <laughs> and so when we went on submission, it was just Opal and Nev simply. And, and to be honest, like that's just what people are calling it, Opal and Nev. Um, I, I do love my title, but it is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but we, you know, um, my editor wanted us to do something that had a little bit more pizzazz to it. And I did this exercise one day where I just like wrote down all kinds of things. I took little snippets from the book and I just liked all the, the V sounds. I liked the mouthfeel of the title, the final revival of Opal and Nev, like it's rhythmic, it's musical. Um, so I thought that fit. So that was the title. The cover, the cover that you see is actually like an iteration of one of the first designs that um, David Littman, the artist who worked on it, ever showed me. Um, I think he maybe did eight different versions and there were some that had like New York cityscapes from the 70s and there was one that was just text and um, the original version was sort of it still had like a concert poster feel and sort of lettering that was very 70s looking because we are talking about you know a, a duo that had their heyday in the early 70s the guitar tune it was different the guitar had like silhouettes in the sides of it and I liked it it one of Opal and one of Nev but weirdly like it sort of looked like an apple core like a bitten apple core on both sides <laughs> weirdly with the faces. And for the longest time, I was very resistant to sort of showing a more literal representation of anyone's face because I just wanted the reader to see it and, and not like have an, an image in mind. But I said, well, let's just try to show Opal on this guitar. Let's just try to show like a little more suggestion of face. And so then uh, David sent that back and, and I loved it. Quite a journey, huh? Yeah. But I mean, it came out so well. And I, I think that 
I think like, like Mateo was saying, sometimes we have to trust the artist and we have to just kind of go, okay, just give us something. You know, maybe not the first one, often the second is better and then like a few adjustments. Next thing you know, you're right there. Um, Robert, I apologize, brother. Your book is in my house, which is safe and your book is safe. So all I have is this picture on my phone right now. Uh, title, cover, what do you want to say about it? Um, the, the title went through several iterations, but before I got to the idea of publishing. So the, the very first title of the book was Sing Hannibal, Bear Witness. Um, and then it was um, Plantation Lullabies as a sort of inspiration from um, Michelle Indegeocello's debut album. Um, then it was the Book of Samuel. Um, and then it was finally the Prophets when once the structure began to come together where it was this like chorus and the overarching um, ancestors, that title came from that, that structure. Um, and so when PJ and I, my agent, um, began shopping the book, we shopped it as The Prophets. Um, the cover, interesting story about the cover, that's the second cover. The first cover, maybe I could actually find it for you guys to show you. This was the first cover. Oh, they just um, changed the orientation. Yes, it was, it was um, a river. This was the, the river in the book that became two faces. And so when I first saw this, I, I was absolutely in love with this because it was so simple, so iconic. Um, I, I just really, really loved it. And then someone on social media inboxed me and said, hey, I saw that you um, displayed the new cover of your book it looks exactly like this other book cover. And so I thought it was your book in the store. And then I found out that that wasn't your book. And I was like, um, because I didn't want that kind of confusion. I didn't, I also didn't want people to think, oh, we were stealing another author's cover and you know, that sort of thing. So I went to the publisher and I, I was heartbroken because I was in love with that cover. And they said, don't worry, we have more covers to show you. Here's number two. And so then they showed me this. And this right here, the little sun, made me fall in love with it because I couldn't tell if the sun was rising or setting. It reminded me of Samuel and Isaiah's love, um, the moments at which they knew it was going to be their time to be together in their little private um, sanctuary of the barn. Um, there, there is a, um, an animation of this where the barn actually pops up and you see the silhouette of it in, in, in the sun um, that Putnam did that I just absolutely fell in love with it. So that became the cover. Um, and I, it, it's really subtle. When, like I have it on the shelf with um, Mateo and Donnie and your book. And the first two books I see actually are Donnie's and, and Mateo's. So genius uh, level strategy in terms of that. Mine sort of recedes, but I also like the fact that it sort of recedes. I, I don't, maybe that's not the right sales move but i just i like the way that it recedes into the background because it, it just makes me curious about about it whereas donnie and mateo's books are bold you have to you have to get, you have to pick up their books because they're so bold but um yeah oh, i love your cover robert and i love the different the international versions as well the different covers for those i can't remember i think it's maybe the australian one that has the pink tone yes. mm. and, and they're going to do that for the paperback in the UK as well. So gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. I, I like it's, it's beautiful, brother. And it's just like, it's, it's the perfect introduction 
to the book as well. You go in feeling open, calm, and ready, which is maybe a bait and switch, but it feels good, at least in the beginning. I love all this love for everybody's covers. And, you know, Robert, maybe you're the best, like, title person in this room because every title you name was like, yo, that's hot. He could, he could totally just take that and just put it on. It's going to work. Right? Book okay. Samuel, it's hard. Wait, wait till you hear the title of book two. Ooh, I can't okay. tell you. Okay. I can't. I won't tell you, but you'll see. Okay. All right. So um, we are getting close on time. So I do want to acknowledge that we would have had another panelist here today, uh, our sister, uh, the kid Delilah Harris. Uh, she just couldn't be here, you know, circumstances. So uh, wonderful book as well. When I read it, I was like, yo, she's about to take over just like everybody else here. You know, part of this team of amazing people um, that have created this sort of literary Wakanda this year, just like just one hit after another. Um, I do want to talk about before we before we close uh, truth in our books. So, you know, I've heard you in different contexts all speak about like trying to tell true stories, to be honest. I know Mateo, for example, said, you know, I'm writing this book for black folks. Anybody who wants to read it, that's fine. But they, we're going to see ourselves in this book. And, you know, obviously. Last year. We had, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbor, we had the protests. But then we all know that a lot of these, these things are kind of cyclical. It sort of pops up and gets real hot, then gets cold, then gets hot again. And so you're trying to write these books and you're trying to be honest about it. So as we, you know, draw down here, just talk about what you're doing in your books to have like a sort of honest uh, approach to telling these stories about these characters, whoever wants to go first. Yep. I... I made a commitment to myself when I started The Prophets um, because Toni Morrison playing in the darkness, put this in my head, playing in the dark, um, that I don't want to worry about um, what Toni Morrison said, James Baldwin said, is the little white man on your shoulder watching everything that you're doing. I don't want the white gaze in control or to be dominant in this space. I want to write this from the perspective of a Black queer lens. Um, and I also don't want any of the tropes that are, are going to make it more palpable for a particular audience. So I don't want any white saviors in this book. Um, one of the things I detest about um, uh, literature from this genre, from this, this time period, is um, the, the almost pathological need for a white savior so that we can convince white members of the audience that don't worry, you're good too. And, you know, um, you're not all bad. We know that you're not all bad, but every person who owned a slave was bad. Every person who, who enslaved anyone else was bad, irrespective of, of their personal character. They could have been wonderful people otherwise. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that um, there were no white saviors in the book. And in that, challenge readers who were not Black to find um, their hero in someone else. Why does your hero always have to be white? Why can't, a, why can't you um, expand your empathy such, expand your humanity such that you can be okay with there being no good white characters in the book, but there are good Black characters in the book that you can be inspired by or love or root for? Why do we have to always make somebody white for you to understand um, human lives? And what does that say about you as a, as a person that you have to be so tailored to 
in order to um, do what Black people do commonly all the time. We, we, we look at white heroes, we look at brown heroes, we look at any other racist heroes and we can root for them. Why can't others do the same? And if you can't, then what does that mean? Um, and I hope that um, with the prophets, um, people who are not black, who, who are connecting with it, sort of um, reckon with that idea. Mm, wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that, Rob. Sheesh! Um, Robert, my brother, always, right? You got to take a breath after you hear Robert speak. You got to take many breaths. Um, but when Robert's talking about people having someone to root for, that was part of the motivation at the heart of Black Buck, right? Um, the dozens of times I've said to someone, quick, tell me a salesperson who comes to mind. They'll mention Steve Jobs, Jordan Belfort, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, um, or Alec Baldwin in the film, Glengarry Glenn Ross, or Willie Loman, who was potentially the American salesman, right, for, for the uh, latter half of the 20th century. I wanted to change that. I wanted us in the States to have a new salesperson to root for, um, and that salesperson to be a black man. And for there to be other types of salespeople, black women, um, non-binary folks, queer folks in this narrative as well that people could see themselves in or not and just root for, like Robert was saying. But, but at the core of this book, in order to tell the truth, I had to ask myself, what is the truth? What do I think about certain things that are taking place in this world that have taken place in this world? What do I feel about certain things that have taken place in my life and try to rid myself of any gaslighting, right? And that took work because I had to go into myself and I had to be very honest and some parts were painful, but I did it in order to tell my truth, which isn't the truth of everyone, which isn't every black person's truth even, right? Um, in the hopes that it would resonate with some people, and fortunately, it has. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but when I was writing the book, it was very important for me to hold Black people at the forefront of my mind as the audience that I was writing to, and even more specifically, Black folks that have been in these types of scenarios where we are the only one or one of the few. Um, and it was important for me to hold them at the forefront of my mind because there is a ton of humor in this book and some of the humor is like pushing it a little bit. And if I were to have had that little white man on my shoulder, I would have been like, all right, Jasper. Um, or <laughs> Jasper could actually be like an old school black man's name. All right. Like Braithwaite. Uh, are you laughing with us or at us? So I had to just fling him off and say, don't get hurt, but get off my shoulder. And um, yeah, that, that enabled me to go to some of the places that I did that required a, a, a lot of what I would say, courage and freedom. So much prepared. Mateo. So Donnie, what do you got? Yeah. Um, so Maurice, you touched on this in your question by saying that, you know, the truth is that history is often cyclical. And um, I think one of the things that um, many people in this country don't want to acknowledge about the United States, especially, is that history is cyclical. And so it was, it became important for me in this novel to not only look back at some of the things um, that Opal goes through in the early 1970s, but have a character as well on a 2016 timeline and sort of do some mirroring 
um, between what happens to Opal and what happens to Sunny across these two different timelines and seeing how it all works together. Um, that was really important um, to me to reflect that. You know, I, I wrote a lot of those parts in real time, honestly. Um, I was in my graduate school program uh, in November 2016, watching, you know, those returns come in on that really terrifying night and um, really wanting to make sense of it all. And I remember that night calling my mother sobbing and her saying, yes, it's bad, but we've been here. We've been here. On one hand, it's depressing. On the other hand, it gave me a little bit of strength to see it through because I know that we have us, we have each other. And I think that's one of the main things that I wanted to, um, to address in the book. Uh, and to both Mateo and Robert's point, you know, for me, being at a point where I was ready to write this novel was being old enough to have the confidence to always keep in mind what I'm writing, what I'm doing, and who I'm doing it for. So the editing process, the agenting process, it was crystal clear for me because I knew those things and I wasn't going to back away from those things in order to get a book deal or an agent. Um, it was all about like finding the right partners, the right match to help bring this book into the world. And that goes to like even going through copy edits, you know, where a character says something that maybe the copy editor has never heard before and me saying, it's good, leave it as it is, you know, um, having the wisdom and, and, and the experience to know like, this is what I'm doing. I love all that, Donnie. And I, I want to take moderator's uh, privilege and rename this panel the We Have Us panel. Because that's <laughs> such a wonderful statement of, I just, I feel that. And I think it's, it's a very true thing, especially when we, on the, we, like we get to the wrong part of that cycle. That thought keeps me afloat in those yeah. kinds of times. So we, we are wrapping up. So um, before we close out completely, I guess like maybe a, a quick statement, anything you want to say about being a writer, maybe inspirational or about your next book you know what you're working on or just like life in general who wants to say anything before we close up well I just want to thank all of you it's been an interesting year to be a debut author um, I was very blessed to have met with Robert and Mateo in person as well as some other writers in Brooklyn um, and I'm so grateful for your kinship even before we met in person you know we were talking online and supporting each other that has meant everything. Um, and, and I know it will sustain me through, you know, the next project. I don't quite know what it is. I'm just playing around again, making it play, making it something that satisfies myself and hopefully it resonates um, with others. Um, but thank you all. This is, this is like, I, I just love communing with you. So. Thank you, same, same just to, uh, you know, Go with what Donnie said, the community that I have been so fortunate to be a part of, um, it includes many authors and many black authors, right? Like you, Maurice, um, who have been in the game for a little bit longer than us. Um, but it's also centered 
which you're included in, again, Maurice, on these 2021 um, authors who published this year. And, and we have just uplifted each other in ways that have been purely positive and genuine. You know, Robert talks about how it's not competition, it's community. And I felt that. And I'm just so grateful to have felt it. Um, to the viewers out there, I don't know if you have aspirations to write. If you do, great. If not, I still would encourage you to write in some form or another, whether it's a journal or a diary um, or intentional text or letters to loved ones. Um, for me, writing is one reason uh, why I'm here and, and, and why, I, why I feel so happy and why I want to get up every day. So just write. Mateo, when you reached out to me before your book came out, I was like, who, who this dude is? And he was saying all this cool stuff. And I was like, all right, all right. That, yeah. that, that's the right energy for all of us to have in these situations. Because again, as Robert has said, we are a community. And we now more than ever, to use that old saying, we need that that that, that, that feeling in the world. Robert, what you what you want to say? Um, shout out to Montiel <sighs> Moniz who in our conversation, um, it was Donnie, um, Dantiel, Disha, and myself, we talked about this idea of being the only one and how that's a trap and how we will not allow ourselves to be pit against one, each other, one another. So that is why um, I say community over competition. Um, and I love that um, I did not know what to expect as a debut author coming to the publishing industry. Um, and found a family of writers that includes Donnie and Mateo and Disha and Kiese and Maurice and Deshaun and so many others. My tribe is just expansive and I feel so much love and protection and safety. Um, but I didn't realize how bigger it was going to get. Black Bookstagram has completely embraced us in ways and lifted us up in ways that I did not anticipate. I didn't even know what Bookstagram was. And then there was suddenly um, Lit Me Down and A Black Man Reading and Reggie Reads and so many other people who spend so much time with our works and engage them in, in really intellectual and fun and meaningful ways. And I did not know what to expect. I did not expect this. And I just want to say for up and coming writers, um, please pay close attention to your, to your community. Let them in because you'll be surprised at um, the ways in which you are nurtured and um, loved on. Um, I didn't anticipate this and it, it, is, it is such a blessing. My hope is that we will be together again on panels in, a, in, a, in another year, in five years and 10 years, Lord knows, because I need y'all and the world needs y'all as well. I, I can't wait to see whatever the, the next books are because I'm, I'm your biggest fans and I'm sure many of our viewers out there are your biggest fans. So just in closing, I want to say on behalf of the Mississippi Book Festival um, and these wonderful writers, the authors of Black Book and The Prophets and the Final Revival of Oprah and Nev. I'm Maurice Collis Ruffman, author of We Cast a Shadow and other books as well. It's been nice talking to y'all. I, I can't express enough. This has been a wonderful experience. Everybody take care. Be safe. I love y'all so much. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.